of what this actually was. What are the Beatitudes? So that's going to be our question of tonight is what are the Beatitudes? In every sermon that we study throughout the Scriptures, there are multiple parts of it. And I'm wondering if... There it goes. So that's that we look through and we try to explain, we try to understand it and say, okay, what was the purpose of this sermon? Whenever we were at the Memphis School of Preaching, they would sit down and they would discuss these points and they would say, well, if you're going to be looking at a sermon or you're going to be looking at a particular section of Scripture, you have to first of all understand one particular word, and that is context. You have to understand the context of what it is that you're reading because I can read the passage out of context and I can come up with all number of ideas because the Bible records the words of men that were very evil or records the words of men that were very good. And so if I'm not looking at the context of something and looking at the reason why it was said, then I can walk away kind of confused as to what's being said and why. I might look at something in the writings of Paul and say, well, this is something that we probably should do today, but it seems very odd to do. Well, maybe it was particularly because of a culture at that time and dealing with a particular issue. So understanding the context and the background of something is dramatically important, and it's no different with the Sermon on the Mount. It's no different than when we look at Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verses 1 and 2, and we look at what Jesus is saying to these people and why. This was his first major sermon. Now, it wasn't his first sermon, because his first sermon, we could say, was when he was 12 years old and he told his parents, I'm to be about my father's business. Well, that was a call of what he was doing, and honestly, it was sort of a call to them as well, saying, this is what I'm sent to do, and you're trying to stop me? You're questioning what I'm doing? It is said in that exact passage that he was also dealing with the leaders of that day. These were the smart men. This would have been the Harvard grads, if you would imagine, He's sitting down and explaining to these people the law, and that would have been an incredible thing to witness a 12-year-old schooling philosophers and schooling those who were very well-versed in the law. But Jesus' first recorded major sermon was that of the Sermon on the Mount, starting in Matthew chapter 5. If you would go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 5. You'll notice this morning our Scripture reading was the first half of the Beatitudes and the second half was tonight's scripture reading, and I'm thankful to those who read this morning and this evening, to give us kind of a full view of what we're going to be looking at. But he starts off in verse 1, he says, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on the mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... So let's look at the background of this first. Jesus is going around teaching these people, trying to bring them to Christ, and to bring them to his new way. And they come to him, and they're going to hear what he has to say. Now, this wouldn't have been an uncommon thing in this day if someone was claiming to be a great thinker or was claiming to be a rabbi, as Jesus was in this time, then they would have come to him to hear his teaching. Now, this is a little bit different for us today because today we have a paywall between us and those who are thinkers and those who are the ones who can teach you. But back in this day, this would have been something that was common. You go to this rabbi, you hear what he has to say, you follow after him, but even more than that, this was a period of time where if you chose to follow a teacher, that didn't mean you went to a class every day or every other day. This meant that you followed him everywhere he went because during the Jewish system, when you were a teacher, you didn't just teach by what you said, you taught by how you lived. And so if your followers are watching what you're saying and how you're living, it adds that much more power to what you're teaching. The same is true for you and me today. As Christians, we're not just supposed to be those who teach with the mouth, but those who teach with our actions. 
How we live is important. It's dramatically important to the world because how can they see a difference between the life of Christ and the life of the world if they don't have an example? If they don't have someone who's living it out? So this is what Jesus is doing. He begins with this sermon. And really, the Sermon on the Mount, we can look at first of all, is an introduction. An introduction to the teachings of Christ from here on out. Jesus was very unashamed of the things that He taught, and He was very bold about the things that He taught. So much so that people were beginning to get frustrated with it later on in His ministry, all the way up to the point where they are ready to take His life because they are so sick of hearing it. They're so sick of the power that He has. The message that He is teaching is one that goes against the social norms. It's something that drives us away from our power seat. And it was something that frustrated the leaders of that day. But this particular passage, specifically verses 1 through 12, is an introduction to the message of Jesus. And it's not one that's all sunshine and rainbows. It's not something that is entirely comfortable. Some of the things that Jesus taught were so upsetting at that time that the apostles even were astounded by what He said and said, how can we do this? Think about one of the messages that Christ taught was that It was easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to go to heaven. Remember, in this day and age, if you were a wealthy man, you were considered to be something. Not that much different than today. If you were to go online and go to either TikTok or Instagram or whatever you use for social media, and you see someone pop up on this uh, sort of a, I guess, a life guru, who would you listen to? The guy in rags or the guy who is wearing a three-piece suit and driving a Maserati? No doubt many would say, well, I'm going to listen to the man who has the money because he's the one who obviously made something of himself. And that's not always a bad thing to say. Sometimes they have some wisdom to give on how they worked themselves to that point. But what Jesus was saying was it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to go to heaven. This would have shocked their worldview. Because how dare you question those who are the highest of society? How dare you question those who actually have an opinion that's worth hearing? Remember, this isn't America 2023 when we have the right to vote. This isn't America 2023 when we have the right to free speech. This was a day and age where you listened and you did what you were told. But Jesus is saying that those who are the highest of society are not that great. What Jesus said, it was revolutionary. It was something that was difficult. But this section of Scripture is the introduction to the greatest sermon in history. Now, are we just talking about Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 in the Sermon on the Mount saying that's the greatest sermon in history? No doubt it's an amazing sermon, but the greatest sermon in history was the life of Christ. The life that He lived, how He daily would go into the group of people who did not want to hear Him, and they taught, He taught the truth. Something that wasn't comfortable, something that wasn't easy. But this was the introduction. This was the debut of Christ coming, and this is when everything began to come to pass. It was the introduction. Now, if we were to look at introductions, we probably have heard this phrase in reference to public speaking. Whenever a speaker gets up, he has an introduction that he does first, some way of getting you thinking about what we're supposed to be covering, where we're going into the thought process. It's leading you into this. When we were at school, we were taught we were supposed to have the introduction, the body, and the conclusion. They said you have to make sure that they all fit together and that you don't stray from the text. Well... Sometimes you have an issue with that every now and again, but it works out every now and then. But this is the point of what he's doing. He's introducing his entire thought here. He's introducing what he's going to do with 
everything that these people have been taught. Remember, what is the common rule of the day? This is the old law. They're listening to the law of Moses that was brought down on Mount Sinai, and they say, okay, this is the law of God. This is what we're to be following. And Jesus says, yes, this is what you were supposed to be following, but I'm come to fulfill that law. I'm come to fulfill that law and to offer you a better way. Now, it was common for the Jews in this day and age to be thinking, okay, the Messiah is going to come. This has been prophesied all throughout the writings of the prophets, and God spoke to us and told us there's going to come a time when the Messiah will be here, and He is going to liberate us from all of our enemies and bring us into a powerful position again, just like in the days of David. But they missed the point. See, their thought process was on physical things. If we were to look at this time period, you would find that the Jews of this day and age were very patriotic. Very patriotic people. Why? They've been in captivity. They had been dealing with oppressor after oppressor. And so if you are a Jew, you're very proud of your cultural heritage and where you've been, and you're tired of this oppression and the prophecy of a Messiah. Sounds incredible. Because if you're thinking from this perspective and saying, we're going to be out from the Romans, we get to be a powerhouse again, the Messiah sounds like a warrior king. He sounds like someone who's going to bring you to wealth and power. Just imagine for a moment that the United States was brought to its knees. And we've been living under another nation for years and years and years. And all of our freedoms have been taken away. Our culture had been completely changed. But you hear of a prophecy, someone's going to come. Someone's going to deliver you. But that person doesn't come to become the new president. That person doesn't destroy your physical enemies. In your own mind, you might begin to question the validity of that person or that prophecy. But Jesus is coming. He's going to introduce this whole sermon, this whole thought, and to show these people there's a better way than even what they think. See, this section shows the foundation for all that Jesus would preach in the coming chapters and the coming books. John chapter 12, verse 48. What do we read there? Jesus said, The words which I have spoken, the same shall judge you in the last day. Now, that just means the red letters in our Bible, right? Just just what Jesus said. That's all we have to worry about. Well, in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, Jesus tells His disciples to go into all the world. He tells them to preach the things that He has been teaching, to show that to the others across the globe. You see, Jesus was going to spread this message through more than just Himself. But the words that He taught, the message that He brought to this world, that was what men will be judged by. Now, here's where some people have a misunderstanding. Because some like to look at Christ and they say, why, why would He do this? Why would He come and try to just oppress all these people? And, you know, we, we just want to live our lives the way that makes us happy. Why would God want to take that from us? Friends, the reality is the world is a sinking ship and Christ was just bringing a life preserver. Christ was just coming and saying, this is the reality of your world. You think you're safe. You think you're comfortable. But the reality is you're in more danger than you could ever realize. And Jesus came to say, you don't have to follow this path. This is just the reality. Now some might say we would be insane if we were in a situation where someone just wasn't allowed to tell you danger was coming. But more people would prefer a comforting message than one that tells them they have to change. How do I know that? 
When was the last time someone told you you shouldn't take that piece of cake? Or someone told you that that junk food is not good for you? might be offensive. I'm an adult. I can eat what I want. Even though we know deep down that they're right. But this is far more serious than just a bag of Cheetos. This is serious because these are the souls of all mankind hanging in the balance. And this is just the introduction. Jesus was bringing a message of a different way to live. See, when one practices these Beatitudes, they have a foundation on which the rest of Christianity is built. Now, in this particular sermon, we're not going to go in-depth into each of these points and talking about what Jesus was trying to say. But for the sake of illustrating what's going on here, Jesus is saying, blessed is the man that. Blessed are those that. Now, what does that word blessed mean? Happy, to be considered happy. He says you can be happy if you're living this life. Now, some like to say that's Christ restricting. That's God trying to hold you back from what's actually good in this world. The reality is, friends, He just knows what's the best way to live. And He tries to offer that to mankind to say there is a better way than that which you're following. So yes, this is an introduction, but it's also a change. This is a change. I like that image there of illustrating what it is that we do as Christians. The world is falling piece by piece. And the reality is we can't save those. Our job isn't to deal with what's already happened. I can't go back in history and change all the atrocities that have been done. I can't go back in history and fix all the mistakes that mankind has done. But I can help those who are here right now. My job is to stop the falling dominoes. My job is to try to stand in the gap to prevent more people from following after the ways of this world. See, real love is being willing to tell those who are wrong that they're wrong. True hatred is to leave them be in their own sin. Now, how can I say that? It's a hurtful thing to tell someone they're wrong. They don't like to hear it. It can cause problems. It can cause friction. It might even mess up a family bond. But if I allow someone to be lost purely because of the fact I don't want to talk to them because it's uncomfortable, friends, that is the utmost level of hatred. Because that says, I don't care enough about you to offer you a better way out. I would rather you be comfortable than safe. If a parent were to leave a child in a dangerous situation just because the child wanted to stay there, we would call that neglect. And that child would be taken from that parent. Friends, we are to be the roadblock for Satan. See, we describe the world and we say that we're trying to walk our Christian walk and the sins that we face, the difficulties we face, those are our roadblocks and we have to stumble over those and keep going and keep going. But friends, we also act as roadblocks to the devil. Every time he tries to get something happening in his own way, we can be an aggravation to that. 
we can be a hindrance to that. Every time he tries to take that soul of your neighbor, every time he tries to take the soul of your family member, every time you stand up, that's a roadblock. That's a hindrance for what he wants to do. This was a change. The teachings were a radical change for the conventional knowledge of that day. In Acts chapter 17, verse 6, the Ephesian people described the Christians. He says, these are those who have turned the world upside down. And they've come here as well. I don't know about you, but if I heard on the news that the Christianity was being called the group that was turning the world upside down, I'd be pretty proud to hear that. That'd be an exciting thing. Because you know what that means? This world was one that was wicked. The city in Ephesus was a wicked place. And if they're saying these are the people who are turning the world upside down, that means they're turning Satan on his head. This was radical, radical change. Jesus was coming not to make people feel comfortable in the world that they had built for themselves, but to challenge it to say this is what's right. What did Jesus teach? He taught that all men were equal in a time that there was no such thing. He taught that women were to be reverenced and respected in a time when they were treated as nothing more than cattle. He taught that you were to help those who were in need when those were considered wasted society. He taught to care for the fatherless and the widows when those were the ones that were thrown out of a city to rot in the suburbs. This is the change that Christ was bringing. Not just to make this world a better place. No, 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 no. <laughs> He's just giving you a preview. He's saying, this is the difference in my people versus that of the world. My people are trying to make the world a better place. But that's just a preview of what I have to offer. What I have to offer you is a home that is greater than anything this world can offer. I offer you peace that the world can't give you. I offer you happiness that the world can't sustain. Now this is just all a happy, lovey-dovey message, right? No. Because he says, I come to save you from a fire that will destroy everything. I come to save you from horrors beyond your imagination. This was change. Radical, deep, to the very core of society, this was change. Which is maybe why people hated him so much. See, this change was one from the wisdom of men to the wisdom of God. Go ahead and look at James chapter 3. That's James chapter 3. You won't talk to me long without realizing that James is one of my favorite books. And the reason is because James is one that doesn't sugarcoat. James just tells you how it is, straight to the point. And it's one that has been described as the Proverbs of the New Testament because it is wisdom literature. It's explaining how to practically live in this world. But let's specifically start looking in verse 13. He says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envying and self-seeking, so again, he's explaining these points here. He says, In your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. 
The wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What's he saying here? He's describing how these people are living. He says, you have all these things that you're allowing to happen, all this wickedness that you're allowing to fester in your congregations and in your society. He says, have those who are wise. Have them as your leaders. Why are you allowing these people who are dragging you away from God, who are teaching things contrary to His will, why are you allowing them to speak? Why are you allowing them to be your leaders? Friends, if our only criteria for someone being an intelligent person is a couple letters after his name, we need to get our realities checked. True wisdom doesn't come from a book. Wisdom is seeing what needs to be done, seeing the things that are taught in the Word of God, seeing how they're applied, and making decisions as a result of that. I can read the Bible all day long. That doesn't make me a wise and righteous person. But if I read the Word of God, I apply it, and I make decisions based on what is said therein, that's wisdom. James is describing that these wisdom these people were allowing was saying this is earthly, sensual, demonic. Now, that's not a word we use a whole lot. But literally, he's saying this is from everything that is against me. This would have been something that was very common in that day. This was a day and age when philosophy was widely accepted, when you were to seek after wisdom. You were philosophers, lovers of wisdom. But if you go write, read some of their writings, you'll find out pretty quick, yes, they were intelligent on some things, but they had a couple screws loose. Why? They're people. They're people just like you and me. We have a wisdom that is from the Lord Almighty. He's offering a change to what the world offers. A better way than what has been laid before. See, God's Word changes those who obey it. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Why is it reasonable? Because after all the Lord has done, after all He's offered you and me, this is the least we can do. This is the least we can do. Friends, if I think that just showing up to worship service on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night is doing God a favor, there's a problem. God cares more about how you act than just where you go. He cares about your heart and your attitude while you're here more so than just warming a pew or a chair in our case. Where are our hearts? Where are our minds? Where is our attitude when we come together to worship Him? Is it on everything but the truth? Are we thinking about everything but what we're trying to do? See, we have to change. 1 John chapter 1 tells us that light and darkness, they have no place together. God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. Friends, if I'm living like the world, I am that darkness that has no part in Him. 
That's our reality. That's what he's offering. This is what he's saying is happening right now. But he offers a better way. But it's more than just an introduction. This section of Scripture is more than just an introduction. It's more than just a radical change. But it's also a roadmap. <clears throat> For those who are younger in the audience, including myself, I remember when road atlases were used. I do remember that. I was very young when I remembered that, but I still remember that. But the reality is for us, even for those who are young, this is the GPS. This is the way that you know how to get from point A to point B. Imagine if you had to try to live a righteous life without a guide. You just have to figure it out on your own. Sounds pretty terrible, right? You want to know the problem? That is how the vast majority of Christians are living. They're saying, I'm just going to try to figure it out as I go along. God gave us a road map so we didn't have to do that. And we're willing to listen to anybody but Him when it comes to matters of religion, when it comes to matters of doctrine. If you're listening to God's Word just because of me, find a better source. <laughs> Don will tell you the same thing. Whenever we're up preaching, the last thing we want is for you to accept this just because we said so. Because that's not something that lasts. What we want when we present these lessons is not just for you as well as it's for us. We're preaching to ourselves too. The Bible steps on my toes just as much as anybody else's. It's a road map. It's a guide that says, turn left here. Avoid that roadblock. If God created the world, would it not follow that He knows the best way to live in it? Would it not follow? Does it not make sense that if He created this very earth we stand on, He knows the way to live in it? James chapter 1, verse 17 says, Every good and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, in whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Everything God offers is good for you and for me. In its entirety. Not in part. You see, the things of this world, they're a gift in some form or another because it gives you some temporary pleasure, but it's not lasting, is it? I can indulge in all the vices of this world, but that doesn't make me a very happy person. Everyone loves to show the, the commercials advertising all these different things, but they don't show you the consequences. They like to show the parties. They don't like to show the bathroom. They like to show the buzz. They don't like to show the streets because it destroys the image they've created. David described, he said, he's never seen one of the lords begging for bread. Matthew 6, 33 says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Everything that we need. Not everything we want, not everything that's going to make us as comfortable as we might like, but everything we need. 
See, God provides for the needs of those who want to follow after Him. When Cornelius was seeking after the Lord and trying to find Him, what did God send him? A preacher. When Saul of Tarsus was ready to hear, what was he sent? A preacher. God provides the things that we need. And He offers us a way to live in this world. See, God has always left a pattern for His people to follow. Let's go ahead and look at 1 Timothy chapter 1. That's 1 Timothy chapter 1. Specifically, let's start looking in verse 14. It says, And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on Him for everlasting life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible to God, who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul is writing to the man Timothy and he's explaining to him, he says, listen, I know that I'm lucky. I know I don't deserve to be here. He says, I know what I did before. I know who I was before. I still hear the screams of the people I tortured. I still know that man Saul. He said, but Christ saved me as a pattern. As a way that others can look and say, how can I get to Christ? Well, if Saul can get there, so can I. He offered that way for you and for me. It's kind of interesting that when we talk about the difficulty of living a Christian life, the things we tend to talk about is remembering to keep up with our Bible reading. Or trying to be nice to people. Friends, the difficulty of Christianity comes when we actually stand against a world that doesn't want to hear it. The reality is America has been given a very easy run with the church. Because we haven't had to face real serious persecution. We may have faced forms of it. But the reality is more congregations have faced civil war than they've faced any real persecution. Because we abandoned the authority. We started thinking this was just something we can do rather than something that's a lifestyle. We started treating church more as a social club than as a hospital. And until we realize the authority, until we go back to the source, until we start following the roadmap that Christ has offered, we're going to be lost. Lost in trying to figure everything out in a world that makes no sense. But He offered us the way. He offered us the way home. He told us exactly what the path we need to follow. And this little short section of Scripture, these 12 verses, was the introduction to all of this. This is an outline for us to learn the rest of the teachings of the New Testament. Because the reality is, if we practice the Beatitudes in its entirety, genuinely practice those, the rest of the New Testament starts to become easier and easier to understand. Easier and easier to explain. 
but what am I doing? Do I look at passages like Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, and say, oh yeah, I've heard that my whole life? And say, okay, moving on. Do I look at the writings in the New Testament? Do I look at the words of Jesus, the words of Paul, the words of Peter, the words of... Do I look at those things and just say, okay. I'm trying my best. But never actually intend to make real change. It's easy to say, I'll stand for the Lord. I'll follow after Him every step of the way. It's hard to do it in practice. So what will you do? What's your choice? Will you see this introduction that Christ offered that tells us a path of change and gives us the roadmap to accomplish it? Will you look at the Word of God? Will you see and apply it to your life and say, I know I have shortcomings, and I'm willing to change those. I'm willing to make those right to change my path, to get back on the path following after the Lord, because I know without Him, I'm hopeless. That decision is yours, and yours alone. I don't know. I can't know your heart. I can't know what you struggle with on a daily basis. Only you know that. But we can hear sermon after sermon and still never change our lives. If there's a need that you have, if there's something that I can see in my life that I need to change, make that right this very evening. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 tells us that He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you just make that decision to follow after Him. To say that I know how I've been living and I'm going to change that. Maybe you've never become a member of the Lord's church. You never decided to follow that path. He made that path available for you, easy for you. We must hear the word, believe it to be true. Upon believing that to be true, we're willing to repent of all of our past sins. To say, I know how I've been living. I know the path I've followed. I know that my understanding has been flawed. So I'm changing my source. I'm following a different map. And based upon that repentance, that change of mind, I'm willing to confess Jesus is the Christ. He is exactly who He said He was, and I'm going to follow Him. And based upon that changed mind and that confession, we will baptize you into Christ this very evening. Bearing that old man of sin, raised to walk in newness of life, leaving all of that behind. And then you can press toward the mark. Follow after the Lord for good. Maybe you already did that. You already were following after the Lord, but you strayed away. You lost sight of the goal. He wants you to make that right tonight to be safe, to be away from all these threats that the Lord has told us about. All these dangers, you can be free of those. If you have any need tonight, don't hesitate. Don't leave these doors unsure. We don't know what tomorrow holds. Make your life right with Him tonight as together we stand and as we sing.